We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. The book of the Revelation, chapter 2. And we shall read just now from verse 12. Revelation, chapter 2, verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. And may the Lord bless to this, this reading of his holy word. We come to further consider what the messages to the seven churches are sent uh, from John, who was merely the penman, in reality, from Christ himself. And before John sends any messages of the, regarding the state and the condition of the churches, these churches and all the people associated with them are to have their minds focused upon the one from whom these messages come, namely, the risen, glorified Christ. Unless they would have an appreciation of his person and his offices and his status and his work, well then, according to their estimation of him, so they would esteem what he writes to them, what the message is, that he sends. You and I know perfectly well we're as human as all those in the seven churches. And you know perfectly well that there are times when someone conveys apparently some information to you. You simply ignore it. You've little interest in it. Why? Because you've no confidence in the informant. You don't trust them. You don't take them seriously. On the other hand, if you go to the doctor's surgery with some ailment, 
you expect him to tell you the truth and to diagnose your problem accurately and to uh, give you some kind of medication that is suitable and appropriate and you believe what he says because of who he is and because you believe he has studied, he is trained, he has knowledge, he knows, or at least he's supposed to know, what he's talking about or what he's doing. And you see, depending on who the message or the information comes from, and depending on what we think or how we esteem the person informing us that dictates how we will respond, how we will acknowledge what is said to us or written to us and how important this is if these people are to take the letters to the churches seriously. They need a definite appreciation for the one who's addressing them. And therefore, they need a full and a complete picture of him. They need to appreciate who he is, the power that he has, his relationship to the church, and so on. And there are things that are stated to each of the seven churches that are similar, in fact, the same. Every church, I know thy works. I just don't simply know what you're doing. I just don't simply know your activities, what's going on actively, what you're engaged in, the work that you're doing physically or whatever. I know what motivates them. I know what's behind them. I know the heart that's behind them. So that he says to Ephesus, in spite of all the outward external appearance of orthodoxy <coughs> and adherence to rule and order and discipline, your hearts are drifting. And you need to return to your first love. You need to repent. There needs to be repentance in the church at Ephesus. They are orthodox in doctrine. They maintain discipline and rule of order. But they need to repent of a cold heart. They need to repent of a decaying love. And let you and I appreciate how important that is. If you or I have to say today, well, when I examine myself, when I weigh everything up, I have to be honest before God. My heart is not as warm. My affection isn't as strong for the Savior as it once was. And instead then of thinking to ourselves, well, pity me. But that's the state I'm in. Christ says, you better repent. And you better return 
to where you were. And you better return to your first love. And then when we come to the church in Smyrna again, I know thy works in Smyrna. And I know that you're very poor in Smyrna. And I know that you're being sorely tested and tried. And it doesn't seem that you're seeing outwardly very much success. We must understand that when we read these letters, they have a right up-to-date application. And while we read the language and use the terminology that's here before us, it's profitable if we move these messages into a a present-day contemporary context and speak as though the very Savior himself was standing here in our midst addressing us in our very own language, using our language, our terminology. What would he be saying to the church in Ephesus? He would be saying, you are a disappointment. You in Ephesus, Disappoint me because your love is not as it used to be and yet mine hasn't changed. My love hasn't altered. My love has not declined. You disappoint me in Ephesus that I have remained steadfastly true to you I have always been faithful to you. You are my church, bought with my blood. And I have remained steadfastly attached to you, steadfastly in love with you. I'm disappointed then that your love for me is on the wing. The church in Smyrna, poor but thou art rich. And we have been looking at that church and considering first of all the knowledge that Christ had of the church in Smyrna like the others, then his sympathy with the church and its affliction. And then we were to look at his exhortation and that's what I want to come to but looking also at the church in Pergamos, because certain things that are said to one church are implied in what is said to another church to be equally uh, important and equally appropriate and applicable. And one of the things that is obvious regarding the churches in Smyrna and Pergamos is the requirement to be faithful. Now, wherever we go today, you go to this church, that church, the other church, Presbyterian, Baptist, Brethren, Pentecostal, whatever. And what will they claim? Oh, you should come to us 
because we're faithful. You should stay with us because we're faithful. Those crowd down the road, they're not faithful. Those ones over there, they're compromisers. We have to ask, what is faithfulness? According to the word of God. Now I have been long enough in the ministry and long enough in church courts to know that there are various interpretations of faithfulness. And it seems often that to be faithful you become rude. To be faithful you become hypercritical. To be faithful, you become pharisaical. To be faithful, you become isolationist. To be faithful, you basically look down on everyone else. You become arrogant. You become proud. You become dogmatic. You become irrational, you become unreasonable. What is faithfulness according to the word of God? What does Christ say to the church in Smyrna? Fear none of those things, verse 10, which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death. Be thou consistently faithful. Now, what does Christ mean? What's his understanding of faithfulness? If some compromiser were to come along and say to the church in Smyrna, be thy faithful, then they would say, well, who is it that's giving us the message here? Well, in his understanding of faithfulness, you can do this, you can do that, you can do the other thing, you can think this, believe that, but somehow or other you're still faithful because you're faithful to yourself. And that's the interpretation of faithfulness in this generation. Children are being brought up and indoctrinated with this idea, this philosophy. You be faithful to yourself. Don't let anyone influence you or dictate to you, or tell you what to do. You be faithful to yourself. And when you're faithful to yourself, you'll be happy. And when you're faithful to yourself, you'll enjoy life. That's the modern interpretation of faithfulness. You see, because there's this recognition, faithfulness has to be measured by some kind of an established standard. And so who sets the standard? 
What is the standard? I am the standard. So long as I'm faithful to me, and don't allow anyone to hurt me, don't allow anyone to trample on my toes, don't allow anyone to push me around, don't let anyone influence me, think for yourself, do what is, makes you feel good. Be faithful to yourself. That is far removed from what John is writing here. Be thy faithful to whom? Be thy faithful how? Be thy faithful under the circumstances You find yourself in in Smyrna, and they are trying circumstances. So if these people, and this is again what we must understand. As I said, we've got to bring these messages into our own contemporary society and setting. The letter comes to the church in Smyrna, just like Ephesus. What are we to think? Well... Someone, the messenger from John, comes with this letter to the church in Smyrna, and they seek out directions to the local cathedral or some great impressive building where all the saints are gathered. No. The likelihood is this letter is taken into a prison cell and read to some poor child of God or children of God in their chains and shackles waiting to be brought to be tried for heresy and to be asked to blaspheme the name of their Savior. This is the reality of the church. It's being persecuted. The saints are suffering. And this is intended to be an encouragement. You are being tried, but God knows. He knows what's going on. Christ, your Savior, knows. And he's sending you this message, and he's telling you, be faithful, even if if you're taken out of that cell, and you're brought before the proconsul, and he asks you to blaspheme the name of Jesus. And he asks you to offer a little incense to the mighty Caesar in Rome. You be faithful. It may cost you your life, but be true to the end. Be consistent right to the end. And whose standard does this faithfulness be measured by. Well, Paul the Apostle, when he's writing to the Thessalonians in the first epistle to the Thessalonians, there in the chapter 5, verse 24, Paul writes this to the Thessalonian believers, Faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. Why will he do it? Because he is faithful. And faithfulness 
leads to consistency in the action. He will do it. He has called you, so he will sanctify you, he will glorify you, he will save you completely, he will do everything he's promised to do. He will keep every promise. He will be faithful to you. He will do everything that is necessary for you. And why? Because he's faithful. This is the standard of faithfulness. The faithfulness of God. It has to be real, genuine, unquestionable faithfulness. God is faithful. And how do we know he's faithful? He keeps his promise. How do we know he's faithful? He does what he says. He's reliable. You can depend upon him. Again, in the second epistle that Paul writes to the Thessalonians there in chapter 3, we read in verse 3, But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. And we have confidence in the Lord. Why have we confidence in the Lord? Because he's faithful. That's why. And therefore, when the Savior says to the church, the saints and Samaria, be thou faithful. He is encouraging that afflicted people to be consistent, putting his confidence in them. What a wonderful thing it is to see the glorious king and head of the church addressing these afflicted people and saying, I put confidence in you. Poor creatures like you and I. And yet they have demonstrated their faithfulness and he's saying, now continue. I want you to be consistent and to carry on And where do we learn what faithfulness is when we turn to God and we see his faithfulness and we experience the evidence of his faithfulness to ourselves? And that's how then we desire to be. Make me godlike. Give me that spiritual consistency that will not compromise, that will not sell the truth, that will suffer if necessary even unto death itself. Now the Savior uh, exhorts the saints in Samaria, be thou faithful. And when we come to the church in Pergamos, the Lord there says, I know thy works where thou dwellest. You know... We are very shallow readers of God's Word. And that's very often why we don't learn as we should. 
the psalmist David said the words of the Lord are words most pure. They are like silver tried in a furnace seven times that hath been purified. It's as though every word that comes from the mind of God is specially chosen by God. Every word. God doesn't talk like you and I do. We say things that we regret. We say things we have to apologize for. We say things and then we have to alter what we've said because it's not conveying the proper message that maybe we intended initially to convey. We have all kinds of reasons to change what we say. God never, ever talks that way. It's as though every word has been tried. Uh, We're talking now uh, as men... We're talking about the infinite, unsearchable mind of God, but trying to understand it in our own, with our own limited human understanding. It's as though God has thought, you think of the mind of God. You try to comprehend the knowledge of God at any precise moment in time, in eternity. He knows all things absolutely, perfectly, comprehensively, everything perfectly at any moment. And out of the vastness the infinite vastness of his knowledge of what he could say. He is precise in what he does say. And therefore, when you and I read anything, we must have this conviction. This could not possibly be said better. This could not possibly be improved upon. There's no mind, no understanding, no reasoning powers anywhere in the universe who could express these truths better because this is God speaking. That's something that should humble us and make us very, very careful when we're reading God's word and when we think we're so smart we can dispute with God. And when we think we're so clever we can dispute with this one and dispute with that one, as though we have infallibly grasped and comprehended the truth. This is God's mind 
perfectly conveyed, perfectly revealed. Now we understand, of course, that it is interpreted by men. Nevertheless, the facts, the truth, are infallible. And here's what John has to write to the church in uh, Pergamos. Verse 13, I know thy works and where thou dwellest. Ever thought of that? Where thou dwellest? He's talking about the church. I know where the church in Pergamos is. I know your dwelling, even where Satan's seat is. I know what you're surrounded by. I know what you're up against. I know Satan has set up his court, as it were, in Pergamos. But even if he wasn't there, I still know where you dwell. Where do you and I dwell? That home that you and I dwell in, Christ is saying, I know where you dwell. I don't just know the number of your house and the street you live in, but I know the condition of your dwelling. I know the nature of your dwelling. I know what goes on in your dwelling. I know the conversations in your dwelling. I know the actions, the activities in your dwelling. How often do we think of that? We think God's away there somewhere, somewhere away out in the distance, in the infinite distance somewhere. God must be out there. God knows where we dwell. And he knows how we dwell. And he knows our dwelling places better than we perhaps know them ourselves. I tell you, that should solemnize us. And here's these saints in the church at Pergamos. And this letter is read out to them. I know thy works. And where thou dwellest. Were they intended to think about it? Or was this just something nice to say? I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is. It's as though... Satan has set up his very throne, his very seat. Now in a Presbyterian church, like our own, I know I learned from the young people through the winter months at Bible studies that there's kind of a general ignorance of the working principles of Presbyterianism. But in the courts of the church, the presbytery has, any one of the presbyteries has what is known as the seat 
of the presbytery. The seat of the presbytery. And that means that the presbytery meets to deliberate. It may go to various churches to meet for special reasons, but the seat of the presbytery is appointed so that everyone in the presbytery and everyone who might appeal to the presbytery or send a petition to the presbytery or a business with it will know that's where the presbytery meets to do its business. That's where the presbytery has its seat and that's where the moderator moderates the meetings and the, the elders, they exercise their authority to deliberate for the sake of all the congregations within the bounds of that presbytery. And here's what the Savior is saying. I know where Satan, for, uh, back in Samarna, Satan's synagogue is in Samarna. But here in Pergamos is where he holds court. He's got himself settled in, well established, and he's working out of Pergamos. Isn't it good to know from what the messages to the churches say to us the references, we looked at them last week, to Satan, a synagogue, a seat, and his <coughs> depths, and so on. The glorious head knows all Satan's business. He even knows where his seat is. And he knows what he's thinking. And he knows, as it were, if we can envisage it, the great moderator of hell's presbytery and all the emissaries of the prince of darkness. How shall we deceive the churches? How shall we infiltrate the church in Samarna? How shall we make the church in Pergamos ineffective in its witness? How shall we do? The devil isn't omnipresent, nor omniscient either. And so the one who is omniscient and the one who is omnipresent, the glorious Christ says, I know where Satan's seat is. And I am aware of all his deliberations. You remember what he said to Simon Peter? Satan hath desired to have you. Peter could have said to the Lord, how do you know that? I know all things, Peter. I know where Satan plants his seat. And I know where he deliberates. And I know what he plans. I know everything I know everything he's going to try and do. He never surprises me. The devil comes and surprises you and I many times. 
And we're so surprised we're taken in and we find ourselves ensnared. But that's not the way with the Lord. Satan never surprises him. Everything Satan does, the Lord is already aware of it. And he fits it all perfectly into his plan. And he overrules it all for his own glory and for the advancement of his own kingdom. I know how blessed it is, he knows. And that's why we can pray with confidence to be protected from him. We can start every day. We don't know what Satan's planned for the day. Who knows what he planned for you this day? But the Savior knows. He knows ahead of time. He knows exactly what his scheme is. And here he says to the church in Pergamos, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seat is, and thou holdest fast my name. And thou hast not denied my faith, even in those days wherein Antipas, my faithful martyr, was slain among you, where Satan dwelleth. Where Satan's seat is, he planned the death of Antipas. Now, none are able to come up with any concrete evidence as to who Antipas really was, but the general opinion is he may well have been at one point the bishop, the angel of the church in Pergamos. And Pergamos was the seat of the Roman proconsul, and so from the whole area, all the Christians... Uh, would have been rounded up, they would have been (coughs) brought to Pergamos. If there were charges against them, they would be brought here to stand trial. And if they refused to offer incense to Caesar, and if they refused to blaspheme the name of Jesus, then they were sentenced to death. And obviously, Antipas was made an example of to frighten the church in Pergamos into compromise. But what does Christ say? Thou holdest fast my name. Antipas was asked, blaspheme the name of Jesus Christ. And he refused. He was asked to deny the faith. How would he do that? Well, the Romans, you see, permitted all the faiths in the great empire. You could have as many gods as you wanted. Just so long, you could be a Christian, in fact, as far as Caesar was concerned, just so long as you also acknowledge Caesar as a divine person. You could worship Jesus, provided you permitted the worship of all the other idols 
and all the other Roman gods. You mightn't worship them yourself, but you are free to acknowledge they are the gods of others and they are legitimate gods. But the church in Pergamos, thou hast not denied my faith. You have stood by that principle, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Jesus encourages them to say, if you overcome, I will uh, give you a hidden manna and so on. Faithfulness was required right throughout all the churches and their faithfulness was tested. And wherever God's people will endeavor in any generation to be faithful, you can be sure that faith is going to be tested. Now then, coming back to this matter of faithfulness, I suspect that everyone here professing to be a child of God would say, well, I I want to be faithful. I really do. I want to be faithful to Christ. I want to be faithful to my Savior. But how will we know if we are? Well, there are uh, throughout the uh, New Testament, in fact, right from, from Genesis to Revelation, example after example of men and women who were faithful, faithful under trial. Daniel, Abraham, Moses. You can go over all the godly men and godly women down through uh, the history of the church. But in the New Testament, you have Paul mentioning individuals by name, closer to the days of the seven churches in Asia. And in the epistle that Paul writes to the Ephesians, you have uh, there in chapter 6, Paul uh, speaking in verse 21 of a particular individual named Tychicus. But, verse 21 but that ye also may know my affairs and how I do to Caiaphas, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. Here was one whom Paul could identify and say, he is a faithful minister. He's a beloved brother, but he's a faithful minister in the Lord. There are a lot of so-called ministers, and of course I'm one of them, in the Clarence Valley. What will you say about them? Well, it's not for me to judge, you know. And I wouldn't want to say anything because I could be wrong. Paul in the church, in the New Testament, was clearly demonstrating here as one example to the church in Ephesus. 
faithful men and faithful ministers can be identified. You can identify them. Oh, but I wouldn't want to be presumptuous. And you know, Reverend so-and-so is such a nice man. And bishop so-and-so, oh, well, they're so kindly. And we go over all the characteristics and all the virtues. And we say, oh, well, we wouldn't want to say he's not faithful. And we wouldn't want to exalt him and say he's faithful. Paul again writing to the Colossians, uh, the epistle to the Colossians, while briefer, is in some respects quite similar to the uh, epistle that Paul writes to the Ephesians. But in the uh, epistle to the Colossians, in the chapter 4, verse 7 there, we have Tychicus again mentioned, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother, and a faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Again, you see the emphasis, in the Lord. Faithful in the Lord. Because if he's not in the Lord, there's one thing certain, he's not going to be faithful. If he doesn't know the Lord, if he's not in Christ by faith, if he's never been regenerated, if he's never been born again, don't count him faithful, he can't be. But then, we read from the second epistle of Paul to Timothy. And in the second chapter of Second Timothy, Paul lays upon Timothy very solemn responsibilities. And he writes from the beginning of the chapter 2, Thou therefore, my son, be strong, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. It's one thing to be in grace, it's another thing to be strong in that grace or to be strong upon the basis of that grace, to be strong because of that grace. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. Now that's important. The things which thou hast heard of me. Well, Timothy, you know who I am. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm no ordinary church member. I am an apostle. And I am the messenger of Christ. I'm his ambassador. I've been sent to preach the gospel To the Gentiles, I have apostolic authority. But Paul doesn't say, the things thou hast heard of me, the same commit thou to faithful men. No, no. He says, the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses. What I have taught you, Timothy, has been confirmed by many other witnesses 
believing the same things, confirming the same truths, so that you have a reliable source of knowledge and information. When you get someone running around with some bright idea, you find poor souls coming out of some of these prophecy meetings or whatever. Isn't that amazing? I never heard the like of that before. That's fascinating. What a scholar. What a man. It's all nonsense. Because there's nobody else confirms it. It's some new opinion that has arrived spontaneously into some uh, man's brain and he thinks he's made a great discovery and when he discloses it, poor souls, well, I never heard. He must be in touch with the Lord. He must be inspired. Paul tells Timothy, the truth is not something conjured up in some independent mind. It's the great truths that have been confirmed through the generations by the divine sent by God, by the theologians, who have searched the scriptures, who have taught the truth, and you and I, if we didn't believe that there was something in common between the Apostle Paul and Augustine and Calvin and Luther and Knox and Swingley and so on, right down to this generation, what would we believe at all? The things that have been confirmed that the Spirit of God has taught to men and confirmed it generation by generation as the truth. That's, Timothy, what you are to commit. What does that mean? You bind it onto them. You bind it like a burden to them. You just don't convey it to them and say, well, it'd be good if you'd remember this. You bind it to them. You put them under a solemn obligation never to depart from the great truths that God has confirmed in the minds and in the convictions of men generation by generation. And when you find individuals, and they're everywhere, oh, I can't agree with him. I can't agree with them. I've got a better idea than Paul had. And of course, I've got a better idea about the church than Augustine had. And Calvin, really, he didn't know what the church was. I figured it all out myself. I've got better ideas. My dear friend, why are we Presbyterians? 
Why do we hold of Presbyterian principles? They've been handed to us generation by generation since the days of the apostles. They've been confirmed in the history of the church. And these truths are to be bound, bound to the consciences, bound to the understanding, bound to the hearts of faithful men. Where do you find them? Who are they? Can we recognize them? Can we make a judgment? Here's a faithful man. It's a fearful thing. I've been, because I suppose the length of time I've been in the ministry, I've been involved in ordinations of ministers and ordinations of elders and deacons in the church. It is a most solemn, solemn matter to credit any man with faithfulness, to know we dare not ordain a man who has not given evidence that he's faithful. If he has given evidence that he's unreliable, he's fickle, he's inconsistent, how dare we? How dare we commit the truth to such? Faithful men. This would be nonsense. It would be meaningless. If Timothy is to do this, and he has no way of knowing who is faithful, and he comes to the point, well, I would like to commit the truth to faithful men, but I don't know who they are. I don't know how you identify them. I don't know where you find them. Well, there's one thing, sure, you find them in the church. They're not in the church. That's a sure sign they're not faithful. But if they are faithful, then you commit the truth to them with the confidence they will adhere to that truth. You commit it to them with a confidence they will not betray it. They believe it. They are convinced of it. They feel it. They believe it. They will preach it. They will teach it. Who are able to teach others also. Men who have a vision for the future. So that with all the determination of their being, they intend that the rising generation will have the truth that the generations past have had. Faithful men who shall be able to teach others also, so that they will hold and believe to the truth. 
men with a vision and a care and a concern for the souls of the rising generation. And sadly, so often, men in the ministry and in pulpits, they're only concerned with the present. I'll soon be retired, get my pension. I can put my slippers on and drink tea at the fireside and relax. And the Lord will have to look after the church in the future. Timothy, you better be able to discern faithful men and commit the truth to them that you know has been confirmed in the history of the church and commit it to them, bind it on them solemnly that they will carry it into the next generation and convey it into their hearts and into their minds. This is the faithfulness that God was requiring, Christ was requiring of the saints of God, the poor afflicted church in uh, Smyrna. Faithful men, faithful souls, faithful men and women prepared to die before they will compromise. One iota of truth. Renick, the covenanter, he said to his congregation, give not one inch of truth away because it is not yours to give but God's. Give not one inch. We have given miles of truth away, it seems, in our generation. Give not one inch of it away because it isn't yours to give. It's God's truth. Be thy faithful and I will give thee the crown of life. You be faithful to me. I'll be faithful to you. The world may hate you but I will be faithful to you. I will give you the victor's crown. We, we're not to think here of a golden crown like the crown of a king. It's the crown, the laurel crown, or the wreath that was put on the head of the victor at the Olympic Games or that in Paul's time, or John's time. And that's what here the Savior saying. You be faithful to me, and I will not fail you. You may suffer. You may be misunderstood, but you be faithful to me and you can rely upon it. I will be faithful to you and I will give you the, the victory and I will give you the victor's crown as well. But the time is gone. We must leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy Eternal God, thou knowest our hearts, thou knowest our needs, and thou knowest how weak we are left to ourselves. We need much of thy grace to be consistent, to be faithful in the church and in our society and in our homes 
and in our dwellings. Oh, that we would live conscious that thine eye is always upon us at every moment. Bless thy truth, strengthen us. We're living in dark times, but strengthen us to be steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Hear us, pardon us, receive us for Christ's sake. Amen.